Welcome to Discovering Academia, an interdisciplinary podcast with preeminent professors from around the world, striving to stoke the curiosity of scholars everywhere. Today we talk with Vlad Miller, Chair and Professor of the Religious Studies Department, focusing primarily on Middle East and South Asia at UC Davis. Professor Miller also serves as the President of the American Institute for Yemeni Studies, an organization which seeks to foster collaboration among international scholars, particularly those in Yemen. In this episode, we talk about the history of Islam, how its major sects came to be, and its cultural impact. We also talk about the civil war in Yemen, why it is so tumultuous, and the role of hunger strikes as a protest method. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, Professor Flag Miller. All right, great to be here. We'd love to start off by hearing a little bit more about your story. How did you get to Davis? What got you interested in religious studies, particularly in the Middle East and Yemen? Love got to me to Davis. It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> my wife got hired here. So we were at two different universities in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, I could stay where I am and have my wife work at Davis or <laughs> try to get a job here. So fortunately, it happened for both of us. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I- I've been very happy here. My interest in the Middle East, yeah, I was born in Kansas. So, um, I didn't know anything about much of the world or the Middle East. I participated in a cultural exchange program after I graduated from high school. It was a year-long exchange, and I could choose continents. It was called the American Field Service. I chose Asia or Africa, and um, and they assigned me Tunisia. And I looked on a map, and I was like, where is Tunisia? never even heard of it and so I, I saw it was on the mediterranean ocean across mm-hmm. from italy and i was like maybe they speak italian <laughs> but it spe- turns out they speak arabic and um and i had an amazing year and one you know one thing led to another um and um my specialization now is yemen so what made you want to specialize in yemen when i was um after college studying arabic in damascus uh, I was there uh, for a year. I happened to see um, a art ex- art exhibit in Damascus that was focusing on Yemeni architecture. And when I saw the incredible nine-story high, like adobe stone skyscrapers made, you know, hundreds of years old or stained glass windows, just this incredible beauty in, uh, in, in building styles and, and, and the kind of environment in Yemen. I thought, where is this? So I, I ended up taking a little month trip that was in 91 mm-hmm. to Yemen. And <clears throat> yeah, it's, it was, um, it's a fascinating place because most of the Arabian Peninsula is very dry. Yeah. Um, and people think of like Arabia deserts and Bedouin and so forth. Lots of that. But there are also mountains and the mountains in Yemen climb to like 12,000 feet almost. And so you get rain coming in off the Indian Ocean with rain. You get crops, forests, uh, monkeys, you know, all kinds of wildlife. And with that, over millennia has uh, evolved this very, you know, uh, incredible culture uh, and, and a very productive one. Uh, so things like we drink mocha coffee and so forth. Well, mocha comes from the port of Mocha in Yemen. That's like, you know, where coffee was originally, uh, you know, some say created and grown and certainly exported for centuries. Yeah, that's amazing. 
Yeah. That's Keller's favorite drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Could you walk us through a really brief oversimplification of the civil war that's going on in Yemen? Yes. So the civil war, uh, been a number of conflicts in Yemen in the 20th, 21st centuries. The one now involves the USA uh, because of our relationship with um, regional powers. Our, our strongest ally there is uh, on the Arabian Peninsula is Saudi Arabia. They're the wealthiest. We have, you know, billions of dollars invested in, in all kinds of ways, a lot of it military. And uh, there's a new king in town, in Mohammed bin Salman, and he came into power about 10 years ago. Uh, and he was young, and as part of his kind of asserting his power, uh, he launched a war that was about this new regime in Yemen that had toppled the former 30-year dictator, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, in about 2011, and uh, and they are Yemenis, the the ones who toppled him. They're they have many grievances against this dictator. Um, they are also majority Shiite, mm -hmm. and the Saudis are not. Mo most of them are Sunni, and quite a bit of foreign policy over history in, in Saudi Arabia has been directed toward, you know, supporting Sunni, uh, Sunni regimes. U.S. has backed that. So they ultimately decided this is not good for Saudi Arabia uh, and made it very hard on the, the incumbent, like the, the new the Houthi uh, government there in Yemen. And ultimately a war broke out in 2015 and there's been a lot of bombing, uh, something like 350,000 people have been killed um, over the last eight years, um, 11,000 children maimed and killed, uh, and, and the, the devastation has been very intense. And were those numbers strictly from combat, or are you also including the famine and all the other things that come along with a civil war? Yeah, if you include... Uh, so that is just uh, deaths uh, through combat. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, the 350,000, a fair amount is that is also hunger. Mm -hmm. um, the 11,000 children is like killed or maimed. So then on top of that, you have something like, okay, so Yemen's population today is about 30 to 33 million. Mm -hmm. um, 80%, the UN says that today, 80% of Yemenis are in need of humanitarian assistance. And you have about three and a half million. So like a little over 10% or, or just a little under 10% or no, over 10% of the, the country is in chronic like food, like uh, deprivation, like starving and, and just really struggling. That's three and a half million people. And then on top of that, you have millions of others who are like really uh, have food insecurity. Yeah, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. You briefly mentioned it with Saudi Arabia being Sunni and then the Yemenis being Shiite or predominantly. Could you give us, it's probably going to be an oversimplified version, but could you give us a brief background on Islam and the difference between the sects? Sure, sure. So I guess let me start because 
you know, religion, Sunni, Sunnism, Shiism is often the way, you know, we approach like thinking about conflict in the Middle East um, for many good reasons, because it's certainly, you know, part of the problem um, and the solution. Let me just start though with Yemen, with a little bit of like, like social, like geographical, you know, history. And that is to say that, <clears throat> and I'll, I'll move into uh, religion, Yemen's mountains, um, make it the most populous part on the Arabian Peninsula. So most of the Arabian Peninsula's populace is in Yemen. Okay. Saudi Arabia, the Gulf countries, very dry and arid. They just don't support a lot of people. So Yemen then has historically been very fertile, very able to manage its own population um, and, and grow it. Um, that said, um, because of uh, recurrent periods of drought and so forth, there's lots of migration outside of Yemen. As people, then the population exceeds the kind of capacities of the country. So over the millennia, Yemenis have uh, moved out all across the world. And now today they have these incredible global networks. And they have long had that of uh, mo moving wealth back into Yemen from all over the world, Southeast Asia, United States, China, and so forth. Uh, but then also uh, moving it back out to those countries. So back to religion. So when you look back at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, and he was born in 570 um, CE, common era, and Yemen was the powerhouse on the Arabian Peninsula at the time. Um, Mecca, where he was born, a really important pilgrimage trading route, a lot of goods coming in through Mecca from Yemen, like frankincense and myrrh to the Roman Empire. They needed all this uh, perfume and kind of incense for their temples. And earlier and so forth, lots of produce. But of course, it was a worldwide commerce even back then. So Mecca was a flourishing trading center. But Yemen was like the place where, you know, when the Prophet Muhammad began to kind of expand and build his his community, he sent one of his most trusted um, guys who was Ali, uh, Ali ibn Talib down to be the governor in, in Yemen. Uh, he was his childhood friend and uh, turned out to be a huge leader in Islam. So, and Ali is really revered, especially for the Shia, although he's also revered for Sunni. Um, so Yemen was important. Okay, so how did this split occur? Well, okay, so let's just reflect on the fact that Islam covers like one in four people in the world are Muslim now. Hmm. Uh, the population is just over two billion. Wow. Um, right, and so historically, uh, Muslims this has been very successful religion, and part of it, what made it successful and a lot of people converting was it was very uh, tolerant of other cultures. So within 150 years of the Prophet Muhammad's death uh, in, in 632, Islam had expanded to encompass 4,000 miles between uh, like Persia, borders of China and Spain, uh, and then from like, you know, so, so anyway, thousands of cultures and the only way it could have spread like that in a couple generations is being very open to different cultural differences now along with that came the growth of powerful arab states arab like centered islamic states and with that centralization you know um kind of policing and statecraft and with that came opposition to some of this 
because there were so many different cultures. And obviously some people are like, wow, this is getting out of hand. Yeah, something in Islam's original message is being lost with politics and so forth. That happens in every world religion. So then what happens is there's a minority group of people that identify with a message about oppression and marginalization. And they are disseminated all over the Muslim world. But over time, they begin to find a particular strain of kind of thought and argumentation that becomes to be identified with Shiism. And why Shiism in particular, what does Shiism mean? So <clears throat> in Arabic, uh, Shiism is from the verb uh, Shia, which means a sect, uh, a kind of sectarianism. So it just was an idea of a certain group that had differences of opinion with the majority. The majority of Muslims back then and now are Sunni. So something like today, like 80%, 85% of the world are Sunni Muslims. Okay. Like if you got 15% and 15% that are Shia. So back then, there was this beginning current of dissent, and it's remained very rich and vibrant. Now, it gets mapped onto genealogical models um, back then, and, and kind of, I always talk about, first of all, there's just kind of rationale for Shiism and that it's, it's not an ethnic division. It's not a idea, like a religious theological thing. It became those things over time, but originally it was a range of different aspirations to Islam. They're Muslims and they found a kind of esoteric alternative interpretation to like what the majority was saying. And often in many places, it was not okay for many people who were protesting political power, you know, uh, that that then became like Shiism became like a an especially fertile place to to kind of push back, and so genealogy the, the the way in which the stories of Muslims marginalization and how they could find the truth through Islam came to be told was partly through the life of the of the uh, the leader um, Ali Ali uh, bin Abi Talib who was, again, the prof who'd grown up with the Prophet Muhammad as a child. And um, so the Prophet Muhammad's parents died and when he was an early age. So he lived with his uncle, Abu Talib. And um, Ali was uh, Abu Talib's son. And so he grew up with Ali. And, and later, Ali married uh, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, uh, Fatima. So, um, so he had a very close connection with his Ali. And the thing is that after, when the Prophet Muhammad died, and the reason Ali didn't attain leadership right away in the immediacy of the Prophet Muhammad's death, and this is very important for Shia because they say there's somehow misrepresentation and deceit that happened right there in the leadership of the early House of Islam when Ali should have gotten leadership but didn't. And this then set the stage for all kinds of like quarreling and dispute and wrongdoing. But <clears throat> when the Prophet Muhammad died in 632, he had no surviving male heirs. So, in a patriarchal society, a tribal Arabian society, having male sons was the way to pass on your power. And he had none. So, this was a problem, but also for religion, a huge opportunity. And has always been, as people thought, okay, this is not going to be like it used to be, like old tribal law and genealogy. It's going to be new. Who will be appointed? We can debate among ourselves and create the kind of conditions for a more uh, pluralistic community. So the first to take power was uh, also a childhood friend uh, and uh, his father-in-law, Abu Bakr. Um, 
Abu Bakr uh, ruled for a few years and then died. Following him was another father-in-law, uh, Omar, a renowned legendary warrior and a trusted companion. He passed away after a few more years and uh, in his wake came Uthman, who was the Prophet Muhammad's son-in-law. Uh, and then Uthman was killed and Ali then was appointed. So Ali was the fourth of who, what they say, what Muslims say are four rightly guided caliphs. They were all revered and they remain so. And I think these are the leading guys in the kind of history of like Islam. And they have so many lessons and, you know, people go back and think about their lives and legacies. But uh, for the Shia, the Shia ultimately say that Ali should have been the first guy to lead. And because he wasn't, that there was mischief that happened, that there was uh, a certain group of people began to be slighted. And that this was Arab, kind of an Arab, like, uh, you know, malfeasance that uh, didn't serve Islam and you know, um, so the Shia then say all of the leaders that uh, succeeded through the history of Islam, you know, the really good ones that they, they can kind of trace blood descent back to Ali in particular and his line in Fatima. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Sunnis uh, also have these kinds of genealogical models of leadership. Um, you know, and Ali is important, but ultimately, um, you know, it's more Muhammad and his descendants uh, that 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 matters more. So, um, so yeah, that um, is so much anyway. On top of anyway, so so I, <laughs> lots to say, but uh, but I'll, I'll just stop there. No, that's fascinating. That's probably the most detailed I've ever had had it explained. Yeah, was the um initial shift for the beginning of Shiism, did that have a particular geographic origin? Yeah, so that's what then the interesting issue is. Yes, it did. And there was, so there was the Arab, you know, society, then there was Persia. Mm -hmm. And there were the Byzantines. And so these were very old, venerable traditions. Persia had these magnificent kings and civilizations. I mean, going back to Mesopotamia and so forth. Islam came into like, you know, what were the Arabs? The Arabs were like nomads. So, so Islam emerging from this nomadic desert had to make its case to these very wealthy elites. And so, you know, Shiism emerged through Ali's line more in a kind of in Iraq and Kufa in some of the disputes that were emerging between um, competing regional powers. Uh, there were the Arabs and the Arab dynasties in Arabia, but also Syria. And then there was the Persian Empire, uh, you know, and Ali and the Shia tradition. Today, the majority of Shia are in Iran. Mm -hmm. So that's a Persian legacy. And so yeah. they look back in particular to some of the ethnic kind of cultural conflicts at the time, which were pretty strident between like Arab, with Arab ethnicity and like Persian. Um, so yeah, the Arab states that emerged were often based in Iraq and Syria and then in Spain and across North Africa. And so Persia kind of had this, this, this you know, uh, a different line. Shiism really flourished there and Sunnism tended to be elsewhere. Is that the only country that 
kind of adopted that as the main. No. So Yemen is Yemen. another country. Okay, yeah. Ali went down to Yemen in like the during his lifetime, so the eighth century, as an emissary during the Prophet Muhammad's life. So that was even earlier. And um <clears throat> and began recruiting people. And um, you know, today I'll talk later about, for example, my work, I'm president of the American Institute for Yemeni Studies. Yeah. You know, one of the restoration projects we're doing in Yemen is in the port town of Zabid, which is right near Mocha, like 15 miles away. Zabid has a mosque from five years after the Prophet Muhammad died. So you can go there, you can find one of the earliest mosques in the world. Um, and uh, they then, around that mosque, later they had from the 13th to the 15th century in that port town, one of the most vibrant and globally dynamic universities in the world. When Europe was in the medieval times and, you know, or middle ages, uh, Zabid had this flourishing, like, university, the sciences and maths and humanities and so forth. Anyway, um, Shiism took root quite early this legend, this kind of story of suffering, of marginalization. Yemenis have lots to tell on that front uh, over time, and it really kind of took root. And um, and so Yemen's another, uh, sh 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 you know, most most of the Yemen, most of Yemen today are Sunni, but like thirty five percent, forty percent are are, are Zaidi Shia. Okay, mm -hmm. and then. You got like Bahrain is also very Shia and mm. Lebanon's quite a few Shia there and so forth. Okay. Mm -hmm. And before we get into more of like what's happening in Yemen, could you explain how religious or kind of sounds more cultural differences between the two have impacted some of the history of the conflicts in the Middle East? Yeah. So um, over time you had... Sunni majority, um, you know, you had Islam being brought into governance and moral life and culture in so many places. Sunnis would often read Shia thinkers. Many of the Shia thinkers had these kinds of connections to uh, communities that had been marginalized in time. They included many in Persia, in Iraq, in Yemen, uh, you know, all over the world, um, and uh, Shia also read Sunni material, and often, you know, there were not, I mean, there was so much that they shared, Sunnis and Shia, and there was cohabitation all the time. Now, where it gets complicated is when there were certain moments in which kind of empire, there were competing Islamic empires, uh, in which religion kind of became a weapon, you know, to like turn against the other empire. And then you would basically see, you know, people centralizing someone else's identity or cultural traditions, marking them as deviant, marking them as like ethnically or racially different. And all of those things kind of got inter interpreted through religion. So that, you know, but so. You know, I think that it's hard to um, give an overarching narrative about like Shiism and Sunnism as any kind of stable identities over time. 
they um, they are like what so, so you know more kind of more inf informed interesting stories are the ones that involve the whole nature of people and their societies and religion is you know one part of that okay that definitely makes sense and one more question before we kind of go into what is going on in yemen could you just talk about the difference between the role of religion in government in the middle east compared to in the united states or more western cultures sure yeah okay so islamic law sharia I mean, these are things that we hear about in the United States and sometimes have even entered into our own elections uh, as politicians kind of get Islamophobic and see religious law being used in the United States as a way to let Muslims uh, resolve their differences or think about um, marriages and inheritance. So, you know, sometimes Sharia gets picked up as something that's all oh, like you know islamic law is going to be like in oklahoma there was a ban against sharia, the use of sharia uh, you know recently and there's so few muslim muslims in oklahoma um and it really was not any kind of issue that for you know politicians to weigh in on but obviously there's a lot of islamophobia so anyway thing is this is that sharia which is the interpretation of the Quran, it's interpretation of, you know, the whole legacy that Prophet Muhammad and all of his companions uh, left in history and, and how those legacies have been helpful for people as they think about life and, you know, ethics. So, so Islamic schools emerged, um, different schools emerged, different kinds of interpretations. They were all regionally variegated depending on cultural need and history and so forth. So that's, that's complicated. But uh, in the Middle East, there's not just today and through history, there were state law. State law could be secular law. It could not be based on religion. So you got, for example, tribal law. Tribal law was a huge force through history in many societies in the Middle East. It was di different. There were tribal sheikhs, different kinds of principles of adjudication and ethics and morals, different than religious law. Um, then you get state law. State law was the right of the uh, the sultan to, you know, as a Muslim, but to say there are certain kinds of rules that the state is going to make and uh you know these are the guiding principles now there's religion and there, there's a guy called the caliph caliph leads the religious community on many of the religious scholars they do that but in addition to the caliph there is the sultan the sultan and the caliph were different and the caliphs were like yeah that's good by us because we don't want to be seen by other muslims as political people we're religious people and that was good with the caliph. Now, at times they would overlap and someone would claim, you know, being both a caliph and a sultan. But, um, but you know, distinction of powers, dis differentiation of powers, um, that was part of re religious history and <laughs> political history in the Middle East for a long time. 18th century, 19th century, the Ottomans come along, Ottoman Turks, very powerful, uh, Sunni guys, uh, you know, and they had this empire all over the world. They began making reforms in the 19th century 
that were more secular reforms to try to set up a courts that are based on the French Revolution. They were super inspired by the French Revolution, all the ideals of equality and that religion and ethnicity should not be the determining factors for a judge. So they set up, it was called the Tanzimat, uh, and they had widespread influences all over. And then, you know, through uh, colonial and post-colonial, I have a colonial regimes in the, in the 19th century, 18th, 19th century. So there was a lot of French laws that were adopted constitutions. Uh, British constitutional monar monarchy became a model for Jordan and like Iraq. And so constitution, separation of powers, like these things are embedded in the modern legal systems of the Islamic world in the Middle East. And there's Islamic law too, but you know, so all of that is to say, <clears throat> when we think about distinctions of religion and politics in the Middle East versus the USA. So first of all, let's, I wanna avoid just lurching toward this idea of like, oh, well, the USA is secular. We're, we have no religion in our law, you know, or there's a wall of separation between church and state. I think that many of us know there's, there's not, you know, we see all kinds of leakage, but I won't get into that. But secondly, in the Middle East, there's so much essentialization, so much of a lurch toward theo, you know, theological or a theo, like a, what do you call Iranian, like um, a theocratic state. Mm -hmm. I mean, Iran has separation of powers, constitutional election, pluralism, you know, votes. These things are really, remain really important. That's why you see actually today all this revolt in Iran because people say that's what our constitution says. And yet there are many religious leaders that aren't respecting that. Mm -hmm. And as religions become wheeled as a political tool, we will not have it. And that's happened many times. It continues to happen in, you know, Middle East and Muslim world. I think, and especially in America, the idea of jihad is really misunderstood. Yeah. Could you maybe explain what the idea is, how it's been misused, and if there's any role that it's playing in the conflicts right now? Yeah. So, um, not many Americans know uh, words that they think of as, like, Islamic or uh, or, you know, Arabic, much less. But uh, the Quran is certainly a word that most people will associate with Islam. Um, you know, and the jihad is, is probably the other big one. So, jihad is in the Quran. It's mentioned as a word. So, it means struggle in Arabic. Simply a struggle. Okay. In the Quran, it's mentioned 49 times. 10 times of the, it's uh, related to uh, using like violence, that is to say, involved with a struggle in times of violence and uh, kind of military conflict. So it is used, you know, one fifth of the time the jihad is, is mentioned in the Quran in that way. Uh, but all of the other times, it's just a spiritual struggle, it's a struggle. Uh, that your own, you commit as a believer to recognizing your ego and the problems with your passions, misguiding you with temptation um, and, and selfishness. So struggle is an ethical and moral idea above all. Now, the reason it starts to get into ideas about like combat also is that at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, um, 
he had he and his companions had to fight as uh, the ruling Arabian leaders at the time saw that he was someone that had a different message than their ancestors. And maybe it was, uh, you know, ancestor uh, kind of indigenous religions at the time, South Arabian religions. Maybe it was uh, Christianity, which was around at the time. There were prominent Christian families, Jewish families, um, even older and anyway, so they they uh, ultimately saw he was mobilizing quite a force to end corruption in Mecca, a super corrupt city, and to end a lot of these problematic um, patriarchal traditions. And they didn't like that, so they went after him. So he had to defend himself. So there were battles, and he lived over, you know, the Quran came to him in a series of revelations over 23 years. 23 years in which this guy was living, received these revelations. They came to him in various states of meditation or uh, kind of uh, seclusion. He would go and he would, these things would come to him in these, these kinds of verses. And then he would recite them to friends nearby. Tell them, I had this vision. Here's what it is. I mean, oral poetry was this huge thing at the time in Arabia. In Arabia. Everybody could memorize and kind of recite poetry. It was just really part of the life there. So it wasn't surprising people could memorize huge chunks and produce huge chunks of this po rhymed, you know, verse. But anyway, you know, he, he did that over 23 years. So, so Muhammad addressed, because of that long time, so many different, not only religious issues, but political issues. And he had to fight and he and others had to think about like, how, when is use of violence and fighting okay? And when is it not? Uh, later, Europe would inherit Muslims thinking on this through just war theory, which was like Hugo Grotius or somebody in like the, mm -hmm. the 13th century came up with this. Well, he read all the Arabs and Arabic writing before him and the Persians and Muslims. And, you know, all that was based on ethics of uh, like ninth century Muslim scholars that were thinking about it's not okay to salt the enemy's field. It's not okay to indiscriminately kill children and women in battle. The Prophet Muhammad didn't do that, and he talked about the importance. You don't fight first. You try to win over your opponent through educating them or through showing, giving an example through treaties, you know, all kinds of techniques, um, negotiations. All that's in the Quran. All that is part of the history. So anyway, jihad... Jihad gets often swept up as to like, oh, well, this is all about fighting and killing the non-believer. And this is, you know, um, first of all, uh, jihad, again, in the Quran, it's not used majority of the time like that at all. And then most of the debate among Muslims about violence and war and conflict in Muslim literature didn't address, didn't use that jihad idea at, really at all. It, it used ideas about war which in Arabic is harb, and, uh, and debates about uh, violence and injustice, um, and, uh, and so forth. And, and many categories of like rebellion and apostasy and these kinds of things, all of those are part of the debate, but jihad was not. It just kind of got pulled in later. And it's interesting to kind of speculate why, but, um, you know, I think... The, you know, there. Anyway, I I will kind of go into that. There are 
ways in which Muslim scholars began to evoke the term as a kind of a, uh, if it was an inward spiritual struggle, by the 9th, 10th century, some writers began to talk about it as kind of a militant spiritual struggle. Uh, and they, they would kind of create some new uh, kind of r stories about raids and conquests that were kind of romantic literature, mm -hmm. looking back to the Prophet Muhammad and his time. But they kind of invented a new place for what jihad could be um, in this time in which it was really right around the, uh, the Crusades. And that, that particular period of like thinking about how to inspire wider groups of people uh, about this cultural political invasion from the Christian West. So do you think the Christians invading the Middle East was a, probably the impetus for jihad being used in the incorrect way? Part of it. Part of it, There's a big story to be told there. Another part of it was Persia and the Persian Empire as well and the kind of conflicts there. It's fascinating. And does the current, I guess, understanding or false understanding that we kind of had about jihad before this conversation, that it is kind of more targeted towards this violence, not this internal struggle, does that play into the idea of necropolitics? So necropolitics, right. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a, a term I've been thinking about along with this uh, political theorist, um, who is at the uh, South Africa, he's Cameroonian, and his name is uh, Akil Mbembe. So he wrote this book in, uh, a few years ago about, he's called, it's this thing called Necropolitics, which is from kind of necro, which is like, I don't know, Greek or Latin, but maybe that's like dead things, <laughs> death. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Necropolitics, I mean, he talks about it as, um, uh, he says, it's like this, the, the way in which um, regimes um, are invested in keeping people in a suspended state of dying and death for their own power. And uh, politics can be waged. You know, we often think of like, oh, the best political leaders are the ones that kind uh, of help people and everybody's convinced like the, you know, it's kind of they're making life better. But many regimes aren't like that. And, and in fact, many regimes are premised on fear. And when you look at our country, uh, the kind of politics of fear and dying, like when this kind of say Supreme Court and the rulings about abortion and the ways in which you know, uh, uh, pushing that back to the states uh, as an issue and, and legislative majorities coming in and saying ban on, on abortion. That means that women are dying because they can't get, uh, 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 you know, access to health care. Uh, I mean, that's just one of countless examples in which there are people like chronic suffering in California. We got the biggest kind of income disparity of any state and it's tons of unhoused people. So, but a very powerful, right, democratic, uh, you know, led state. We, so, so necropolitics is part of kind of a, a way of governing that's very uncomfortable to think about, but is, has existed. And it's uh, keeping people in these suspended states of precarity and dying that then kind of allows for extremist rhetoric to come in. Anyway, so yeah, um, jihad and necropolitics. Um, so when you look to the critiques being launched against necropolitical regimes in uh, the Middle East, 
uh, many of them are advanced through these traditional vocabularies of uh, Islam and justice and what is the full human being, how is it uh, robbed of its vitality by selfish interests and, uh, and so forth. And um, I've been doing work in Yemen recently thinking about um, how reformers who are protesting necropolitics, there's so much the politicization of religion now, and a lot of it's done in, in the name of uh, kind of keeping classes of people, uh, entire populations kind of subjugated and starving. You know, how, how Muslims recruit Islamic vocabularies to, to push back, and, and jihad is, is one of those, um, one of those terms that does get used uh, productively. It also gets folded into a lot of mischief. So, uh, because of the way jihad is centralized, not only by the West, but also, you know, many Muslims. So, there are lots of regimes and Muslim societies now that jihad, you know, talking about jihad as, a, as an idea, as a political concept is also equally uh, troubled. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I think your point about this isn't a term for the Middle East. This is very much present in our culture here in the U.S. too is pretty important. So now kind of pivoting back to what's currently happening in Yemen, could you describe some of your research you're doing and how the conflict is possibly impacting that? Love to. I mean, okay, so Yemen, um, there's so much to say and so little we know. Um, uh, 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 you know, I, I spent um, several years in Yemen. So Yemen was the site of my doctoral research and then my first book, and it was on poetry and political poetry in particular. And the ways in which, when Yemenis face conflict, uh, as good Muslims, they start with um, discussion and with kind of boiling down, like, well, what are the real issues? And that means uh, using words, not weapons, and uh, and all, you know, to begin with, and that, and then also um, persuasion. Poetry is widely respected there. There are tribal poets across Yemen. Their voices carry an immense amount of weight. They are the kind of collective uh, um, memory of, of, of tribes and communities. Um, and so, you know, I just saw many occasions in which uh, something would happen, you know, between a couple villages, land disputes, um, you know, theft. I mean, the thing, things that happen in any society. And the way in which groups would uh, begin to resolve their differences was they'd come together in these formal meetings that were scheduled in advance, often out in fields or at uh, particular houses. And as they would approach as groups of men and uh, they would, and, and mostly it was men and women have their own traditions of poetry as well. Uh, they would uh, send out, uh, they would compose poems that would uh, concisely sum up what they, their views were and what the issue was. And they would sing them in these kinds of like vocal voices really loud as they walked together and they would dance in these tribal dances with their uh, tribal daggers and this kind of ritual performances. And it's hard to wrap your mind around like a tradition of this, but this is was is has been very common in Yemen. The war is has has had its impact, and and now it's less common. But, um, but you know, it's part of the resources people have there. So anyway, my first book 
was a lot on uh, the beauty and, and function of poetry in their tribal society and in, in modern life. Um, what's, what I'm doing now is um, related to that in so far as, okay, so I was working, um, so it's about continuing efforts to resolve social conflict and, uh, you know, to do so uh, through these vocabularies and traditions that are religious, they're Islamic, Muslim, uh, and they also are cultural. So Yemen has a particular set of cultural inflections of what Islam and verbal, you know, Muslim life is like. Um, part of it's tribal. There's a lot of tribal life in Yemen. It's very prominent. So we're talking about uh, kind of Islamic tribalism, or you know, and uh, and part of it is Yemen's own political history, which over the course of time, as I say, Zaydism was, or Shiism was really prominent. These discourses about justice and pushing back against oppressive majorities, that was within the House of Islam, so there's lots of that in Yemen. And um, over the course of, the, so there was a, let me just kind of move into, okay, so the, some of the oppressive authorities recently, in recent centuries in Yemen, um, and I'll kind of get to like how political dissent is happening now and why history is important. Ottomans, they moved into Yemen like the 17th century, the Turkish Ottomans. So that was a power base. Um, later, well, you had Portuguese before them, so European colonial powers. And you had uh, British colonial power following... In the, in the 1830s, they began to set up a port in Aden, which was a Red Sea port where there was a lot of steamboat traffic, you know, along the Red Sea to Asia and India, all of it moving up the Red Sea to Europe um, through the Suez Canal. And, you know, originally it was a land route until they could build that canal. But um, Yemen was, a, yeah, Aden was a very prominent place. So, so there was British colonial power. Ultimately, the British were kicked out in the revolution in the south, uh, in southern Yemen, against the uh, the British in 1967. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, and so, in the wake of the British departure, um, you know, Yemenis had this chance to kind of build a new United Nation. Um, the problem with that and the reason it didn't work out right away is that um, Yemen had, because of the Ottoman presence, uh, and it had been ongoing up through World War One um, until the Ottomans were defeated. Yemen had split into two different kinds of two different countries. There was North Yemen and South Yemen. North was Ottoman controlled, very Islamic, very Shiite. The South was British you know, federation, they were majority Sunni. And, um, and so there'd been these two different, uh, competing, you know, colonial powers. So in, um, so over the 20th century, uh, until, you know, Britain was kicked out in 1967, uh, Britain was unable to advance into the North, even though the Ottomans had fallen because of a strong Shiite uh, emimate there. Uh, 
who was um, more traditional, and their ally was Saudi Arabia and the United States mm -hmm. uh, during the Cold War. And the Southern, like, once the British were kicked out of uh, 1967, the Southern Yemenis um, couldn't get support from the U.S. or Saudi Arabia uh, because they'd long been uh, inspired by anti-colonial, anti-British, pan-Arab leftist discourse through the 20th century. So their allies were like Egypt, Egypt, which is a big pan-Arabist country, uh, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, you know, and so there's a lot of socialism. So what you're looking at in, in a fascinating situation in Yemen is still grapples with its legacies is Cold War strident difference between like Islamist discourses and very conservative in the north, um, oddly lined up with U.S. and Western interests. Of course, the U.S. has long had many Islamist allies. We're talking the Afghan Mujahideen, countless Saudi Arabia, countless places where the U.S.'s strongest allies in the region are super Islamic, super conservative. Um, and then in South Yemen, you had opposition to that through uh, communism, you know, all those folks are Muslim. Many converted for a, for a number of years and were like, nope, no longer Muslim. I'm a, I'm a card-carrying communist and, and party leader. And, you know, in the early 70s. Um, but over time, and that kind of faded and everybody was like, okay, wait, we got to bring together, you know, this socialist history with Islam. And that, there were many pathways for that through the 20th century. It's partly what makes the Middle East so fascinating. Uh, Baathism in Iraq and Syria was a kind of Arab socialism. It drew on communist roots, but was also uh, very religious with lots of Muslims, uh, all kind of representing themselves as Baathists, and, but wanting to do so through these no, new, more progressive, you know, political visions uh, or socialist, you know. And so, anyway, so Yemen is a legate to, it's inherited these very different worlds. Poets are really good at navigating between them and helping explain the continuities of history and how to do, how to be a Yemeni and all that conflict and turmoil, you know, ethically and righteously and so forth. But um, what I'm interested in now is uh, one political uh, leader who's in parliament. His name is um, uh, Ahmed Sa uh, um, Saif Hashid. And he's, a, again, a parliamentarian in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. And he is a human rights leader in Yemen. Uh, he's had struggles. Uh, struggles because, you know, various corrupt regimes don't want human rights advocacy. Um, he's been, you know, targeted and he struggles. But he has mobilized a kind of language, partly through his own socialist background in the South, to argue for uh, pluralism, greater representation, uh, the, the, a right kind of pass, pathway, the Islamic pathway, that would not kind of capitulate to Islamist interests, but rather represent Muslims in new kinds of political alliances and that could um, protest against, number one, imperialism, um, that is especially, you know, the history of imperialism, Yemen. So, uh, and, and also, uh, necropolitics in Yemen. 
So one of the interesting things that I find him doing is that, okay, he is not himself Shiite uh, from the north. He is, uh, again, from the, he's from the south and has a socialist political history. Um, but he nevertheless, okay, in Yemen today, there, because of the war, there's a south, southern government, and a northern government. Mm -hmm. And the northern government now is Shiite, and they are tribal, uh, the Saudi Arabia. Historically, they would have liked those guys in the north. Now they don't. So that's been a, a turn of tables. Now they're Shia, no longer, you know, uh, kind of uh, Sunni. And so Saudi Arabia didn't want them there. They're the Houthis. In the south, you know, there is an internationally recognized government today. Most world powers say the government in Yemen is in the south. They're represented until recently by this leader um, uh, named uh, Abdurrabu uh, Mansour Hadi. And um, so they are the legitimate government. They have these kind of stronger socialist commitments, but also, you know. So this leader is from like what, for the South, he should be represented and representing that government, but he doesn't like the ways in which they now have kind of been collaborating with the United States and Saudi Arabia to fight the Houthis in the North. He just doesn't like that foreign intervention and the whole history of imperial power in Yemen. He wants more indigenous, um, you know, Yemeni power. And so he is willing to work with the Houthis. He's joined their parliamentary system up in the north. He's trying to kind of create more opportunities to think about representative government. And, you know, he is, um, he's kind of turned to uh, hunger strikes and fasting as a way to do that, to protest and get a lot of attention. But I've, I've thought a lot about how political activists like him, they find themselves kind of in an impasse, crossing so many ideological and religious boundaries courageously. And so what he does to try to kind of like resolve them is just go on hunger strike and be like, I am a human being and I am hungry, but I'm not hungry because I'm a victim or I am uh, somehow like many people looking at Yemen, like, oh, so much hunger there is. He is willingly and, you know, chosen to go hungry on behalf of many other Yemenis, but also to make a political point that is about... Um, it calls out the ways in which regimes, including the Houthis, which he's, he represents, but also he's got a lot of problems with them, how they depend and they kind of recruit like death and dying as part of their political power. And he's like, this is what uh, uh, Akil Mbembe says is, is part of what, what happens in, in a, is a protest tactic in necropolitical regimes is uh, suicide. That is, if you take your own life, or you put yourself willingly into this condition of dying, you seize power from the state that is imposing that on you, and you instead turn it to to, to kind of be a, a, a method of calling out uh, just the, the system that is so often seen as, uh, as kind of just the, the, the nature of life, which it shouldn't be, and misrecognizing the political opportunism behind it and saying, no, this is all political opportunism. Um, and I'm, I'm actually don't need to be hungry, but I'm choosing to do so, uh, in order to, to kind of call to attention this problem. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting. I have a question about, because you've talked about 
the point of the hunger strike to a degree is separation from the opposition or rather oppression from the state is the kind of philosophy behind it an individual decision or is in doing this hunger strike the goal to inspire others to join his philosophy yeah the neat thing about um hunger strikes in the middle east and and basically as a political tactic is they have a very uh, strong history in socialist activism which is about individuals often in jails and they were originally uh, mobilized politically by women bolsheviks in the 19th century moved into England and Ireland as female activists went on hunger strikes. They were doing so as individuals, but also as uh, collectives and really wanting to call out uh, abuse, state abuses uh, and imperial power. Uh, and so they adopted hunger strikes, women, socialists. This tradition kind of got picked up in the Middle East in the 50s, in Egypt, in jails and other places. And so it has this strong kind of socialist protest history. And in Yemen, because of its own socialist histories, uh, it's been adopted effectively. Some of those vocabularies of um, kind of communal, the communal good, the common good of, um, you know, resisting uh, capitalism, uh, resisting kind of cronyism or, you know, uh, political um authoritarianism that those are are very much part of the you know critique there um and you've had other groups too drawing on those traditions like islamic jihad in uh in palestine there's lots of hunger strikes by muslim prisoners you know and they're they're less kind of overt or conscious of, of the socialist political histories of of that tradition but you know um but they're there is that gaining steam? Is it an effective way to protest and move the governments forward in kind of resolving the conflict? Indirectly, you know, the actual outcome of uh, Ahmed Saif Hashid's political hunger strike in 2017 was uh, very small. Um, and it's hard to get a read on it a little bit. I haven't had a chance to go to Yemen, interview him. Some of his supporters said there were tangible benefits that, you know, one of the, um, one of the things they were really, he was, and his supporters were really uh, protesting was um, state workers had not been paid by the state for uh, special state employees um, for uh, nine months at that time in 2017. They, um, it's still a big problem in Yemen. So his specific tactical pro critique, the critique of necropolitics, was about the state not paying state workers, mm -hmm. not paying their salaries or their pensions, even though they continued to go to work and continued to produce for the state. So that, <clears throat> so um, there's been some headway. And so anyway, political protests, um, like hunger strikes, uh, effect, their effect, efficacy is mostly um, in uh, kind of, mobilizing attention to the cause internationally yeah which is very important um and also in kind of shifting the conversation um, among yemenis among activists um you know about what is what is politics really about and 
how are the old solutions that people have and yeah i'm into kind of cr criticize the state or political how are they inadequate or are they you know you you might just you know could get thrown in jail for saying something you know directly or get killed or get bombed hunger strikes is kind of a more passive resistance thing that you could just do on your own and it over time builds its solidarities in quieter ways mm -hmm. among those who support it and think about you know taking agency in a in a time and place where it's just so hard to even imagine yeah and another thing i thought of when global governments recognize the south being the legitimate government does that further perpetuate the conflict itself does foreign intervention prohibit a real solution coming forward yeah that's a that's a great question um you know i think you'd have people arguing on both sides of that um and the arguments are, are really interesting and um so that's the real issue you know when when does foreign uh engagements for foreign intervention uh serve a, a population how um when does it not i mean obviously those who are fighting against the southern government in yemen see it as a big problem uh as the nation being hijacked by these old colonial powers um bombed into submission and so forth and you know they have every every way to argue that and show that um at the same time the f world international powers you know they have their own language for bringing about resolution a lot of it's mediated through the united nations um you know the u.n charter from the get-go uh charter uh the um uh, un uh, charter seven of the security council Re resolution stipulates that no u.n member nation can invade another nation that includes saudi arabia um they, they should never have been able to invade yemen um so legally you know the the u.n does not did not support that war it was an illegal war so you know the fact that world powers recognize the u.n and see it as a way through is not to say they support you know the southern saudi u.s backed war against uh yeah, kids and women and Yemenis, but is to say, you know, um, we got to end this fast, and and there's mechanisms to do that. So that's one of the pro that's one of the challenges of thinking about intervention and in, and in international and in international powers intervention is often um, extending kind of the good things that could happen from intervention. That is to say, rule international rule of law, recognition of human rights, humanitarian assistance, which is so important, um, and, and kind of advocacy. Those accompany militarization and military solutions, right? So I don't think this is the only place in the world where you see these kinds of really uncomfortable alliances happening. I mean, there's so many examples in Yemen, Yemen's a great kind of place to study this, of, uh, you know, the U.S. on the one hand wanting to offer humanitarian assistance and so forth and, and doing the right thing. At the, and, you know, we've had repeated uh, like, uh, things in Congress where legislators go to Congress and uh, are, like, trying to pass anti-war resolutions 
most recent was uh, Bernie Sanders and um, you know and, and crew um, in Elizabeth uh, Warren in, in like 2018 uh, didn't 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 end up like passing, but nevertheless, okay, so lots of awareness uh, at the same time. UN, the United States, because of its focus on fighting terrorism, in particular, uh, weaponizing um, you know political regimes in Yemen against their own people because they supply them with lots of military stuff, and also like prioritize the drone and like espionage and surveillance and you know intelligence apparatuses and all the tools, the tricks, and uh, you know that come with that. So the drone, you know, US, U.S. drone um, strikes. There's been like. 400 since uh like 2011 or something like that and many of these have killed uh you know innocent people um it's hard to document because uh, you know it's all kind of like no reporting from the pentagon on this but you know many yemenis and other uh international journalists have gone in and documented many cases of just uh wanton uh, drone strikes and you know those include from Air, air, you know, regimes, kind of uh, air, air, air tactics employed by Saudi and GCC countries, Gulf cooperation countries. Uh, so, so it's messy. It's super messy. Uh, there's foreign mercenaries. There's the uh, Wagner Group, which is, you know, the largest kind of private army of terrorists in the world that's supported, you know, by Eric Prince, uh, who's the brother of former, you know, U.S. education um, Secretary uh, Betsy DeVos, who's his brother, wealthy family, just a huge arms merchant. And they've got all kinds of soldiers working for uh, the United Arab Emirates in Yemen fighting the Houthis. Um, at the same time, United Arab Emirates and Saudis are pouring in lots of humanitarian assistance, which Yemenis appreciate. So it's uh, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely seems like that. Yeah. What is, I guess, a good course of action to get people to understand what's going on? Because it seems like with the U.S., for example... There's a lot of efforts, as you mentioned, for humanitarian aid there, but we're also funding a large, you know, distribution of the destruction. Yeah. Does educating the public in countries that aren't involved impact, like, would that even help Yemen if oh, all Americans really understood what was going on? Absolutely. I mean, I'm just going to say 100%, and that's what I do as an educator, um, and that's what you all like uh, uh, your questions indicate you're interested in this, which I mean, it's part of the war. It's part of like what we can do um, is just pay attention and tune into alternative radio and tune into conversations in your community and the people in the, in your community, UC Davis, there's so many great people here and, you know um, I mean, I'm privileged to be one of those voices. Um, and, but, you know, I can talk with anybody and, you know, we have, as I say, it's like many of the, many kinds of resources for what you all as students can bring to the table thinking about necropolitics, thinking about kind of justice or just media misinformation. Um, so I think that, you know, and Yemenis really appreciate that. So I, I'm, I'm a, a president of the American Institute for Yemeni Studies. We work with Yemenis all the time, academics and scholars and regular, you know, and they, um, 
you know, they, they rightly call out just how a little attention is given to, to that part of the world and, and their needs. Um, how, how, you know, and, and there's, there's a lot of, um, value that can come from just, um, talking about the issue in the United States. Other countries may not be involved like, like we are, of course, we're the, you know, in, in many ways, the, the strongest and most kind of equipped country in the world. So we, we have interventions all over the place. And, uh, you know, other countries, and also us, by being aware of injustices or just imbalances of the ways we invest and think about solutions um, to these conflicts, um, you know, we could bring about change for the, for the, for the better. I should say some some of it just involves learning um, how to donate to Yemen, how to support you know human good humanitarian efforts. Um, you could do that through say state uh, USA based like uh, Care for the Children, which is an organization. They do great work. Um, they're focused on on kids and their suffering and basic kind of hygiene and education stuff. There's also uh, international organizations like the World Food Program, another great place to donate, and you can find them online. We'll put them on the website. Um, too. Yemeni, yeah. there's uh, Yemen Aid um, Care Network, which is a Yemeni and Yemeni American like relief organization, and they have a kind of more fine grained um, website with really good ways of seeing where your invested dollars can go. Um, and then there's the American Institute of Yemeni Studies. We too welcome donations. What we do is we help Yemeni academics, um, university students um, in Yemen. We channel, we're congressionally supported. Uh, the Kennedy administration uh, back in the 60s set up this kind of um, cultural like and, and education act that set up a number of um, U.S. foreign research centers around the world. We got like 22 today. Yemen is is still uh, one of them. We've got an office in Sanaa, um, and yeah, Americans can't travel to that office in Sanaa now because of the war. Um, Yemeni Americans can manage. They've got dual citizenship, but. Uh, Instead of sending scholars there, which we hope to do in the future and have traditionally done, we support Yemeni scholars in Sana'a and across the country. And they apply for fellowships and we, we, uh, we help them kind of, you know, find professional pathways and put them into conversation with us in webinars and all kinds of stuff like help, help uh, publish books that they're writing, all kinds of things. So we also welcome donations. Now, this has been very illuminating conversation there's definitely a lot that we didn't know coming into this so that's so great i mean it's great you you're here in in, in the room is like how many times do you move into a room where you don't know much and you learn a lot and i think that's so rare because we often get in these patterns and patterns of thought or patterns of who we hang out with and you know life can end up seeming seeming pretty narrow your narrow restrictions narrow kind of like god what you know anyway i too really value this time with you all it you all gave me the incentive to like put put a few thoughts together before this interview and um and yeah i i just really treasure sharing you know some thoughts with you yeah thank you so much thank you professor miller absolutely to continue your learning go to our website discoveringacademia.com there, you'll find the show notes, 
resources mentioned, ways to get involved, and much more pertaining to each professor. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave a review, and join our newsletter to stay up to date. Until next time.